Welcome everyone to episode 9 of the Maester Monthly Quill and Tankard. Today we're going to be talking about episode 6 of Game of Thrones season 7 entitled Beyond the Wall. Just as a heads up, this cast is spoilers extended, which means it will include all of the information from the aired episodes of the show and possibly everything from the books, including the unpublished Winds of Winter sample chapters. You have been warned. I'm one of your hosts, Michael, better known as Bookshelf Stud. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, better known as Glass Table Girl. And I'm another one of your hosts, Joe Magician, also known as Matt. I'm Aaron, I'm the editor, and I'm here. And we're joined by a special guest today, one of our fellow moderators. Say hi to Brian Baratheon. Hi everyone, I'm Brian Baratheon, also known as Hashtag Alenity Nothing Wrong. If you know me, you know me probably from defending Ned and Danny from the onslaught of hate that they occasionally get, or for talking about the Tyrells, which are my favorite house, and a number of other things in the comments of your various posts. Word. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. So before we jump into the scene-by-scene breakdowns and all that, let's just get our initial thoughts on this episode, because I think this one might be a little divisive. I really enjoyed it as an hour of television. I was on the edge of my seat, and this is coming from someone who had you know, as a moderator, been exposed to the leaks and all that, so I kind of knew what plot points were coming. But um, I-, I was I was still on the edge of my seat. You know, we were yelling at the TV, my wife and I. For me, that's the metric of a pretty good episode of television, is when it grip my teeth or yell or whatever. Um, Eliana, what was your takeaway? So, interestingly, my partner and I were also yelling at the television, but <laughs> we didn't actually really like the episode it started off we were like hopeful we we're like all right this, this is going to be interesting even though we were still a little skeptical of why this is even happening in the first place <laughs> and as it went on uh we just lost a lot more faith in like the way that the story unfolded mm. just weren't pleased with some of the choices that were made in how to portray the characters and the stakes and how problems were resolved that's that's a very clear outline of the problems with the episode <laughs> I was I have a mixed opinion on the episode. I had numerous problems with what was with what was going on in Winterfell. I really liked the stuff beyond the wall and Danny and Tyrion and the battle scenes. We really followed the Magnificent Seven the way through with a group of characters a lot more throughout this episode. They really brought up the history and laid out their interpersonal relationships and I really enjoyed all that. They were up against the wall of the dead and you know they held together. Sure, yeah. I was so excited after the end of last episode, because I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. they've almost punted the last episode in order to get this big thing set up north of the wall. Here we go. We're going to have this great, exciting episode. They punted it. There's going to be a touchdown. And we got we got the pass, but the Night King, he passed it to the other team. And he <laughs> incurred a 50-yard penalty. He killed a member of the opposition. That's not how football works. That's definitely not allowed in football. <laughs> This doesn't sound right to me at all. <laughs> Sounds more like NHL hits. I, I was expecting more out of it. I felt like they couldn't pull the trigger towards yeah. the end mm. with all the fake outs. Here's a, Tormund, he's in trouble, could not pull the trigger. They couldn't pull the trigger on all these other people except for like characters that don't, I think, bring in fans. And so they want to keep them around to somewhat increase ratings. I know that sounds bad, but I think that's one of the reasons why they did it that way. We'll see in next episode um, what happens with keeping characters around. But yeah, sure. yeah. Mm. that all makes sense as an impression. So, Brian, what were your thoughts on the episode? My thoughts are complicated. And I- I'm going to start by saying... I, I agree with you that I think it it was a compelling hour-ish of television. And I uh, 
I'm going to make a point of trolling you all with a little positivity throughout the night. And then, and then I, I, I enjoyed watching it, and I think it succeeded on its own terms. That said, I think those terms, as they have for a lot of the season, have changed dramatically from what they used to be. And I think most of the plots and most of the characters are unmoored from the first and second acts of this story, both in the show and in the books. So I, I think there is a little suspension of understanding and depth that goes a long way in terms of enjoyment of the show on its own terms and what it's become, because it isn't, except in some small ways, trying to reflect, I think, some of the depth and some of the nuance from earlier uh, installments of this story in all media. Those are complicated thoughts, Brian. You bring <laughs> complicated thoughts to this podcast. Well, I try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should probably get this out of the way to start with. A lot of people are ripping on like the timelines and stuff. I don't really feel like this podcast should concentrate on like the minutia of it. Like the timelines to me, I, I don't really care like if it picks up speed sure, at all. Yeah. Um, that's sort of like the more mundane yeah. way to describe that you didn't like the episode. And so mm -hmm. Of all the sins the show is criticized for, I think that fudging the timeline a bit is the most acceptable thing for a television show to do uh, <laughs> because of the nature of the medium. I, I think that is reasonable suspension of disbelief, even if we've had to suspend a little more disbelief recently than we did in the early seasons. <laughs> yeah, my I mean, just a smidge. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely suspended pretty pretty high yeah. up there. But um, <laughs> then let's let's just jump right into the behind the wall, beyond the wall, beyond discussion. the wall. Um, and they they really do linger a lot this episode, at least for the first half, on just making sure every pair of characters gets their conversation <laughs> between each other. Everyone hits their character beats they're supposed to hit together. That's true, and the show's got widely, uh, roundly criticized this season for not giving characters enough time to do that. Mm. This time, they finally did. They wanted their histories told, they wanted their relationships told, and they gave them all time to do it, and reasonably good writing to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah totally. I thought the, the first couple minutes here were really great. John and Tormund catch up. He's teasing Gendry about lack of women north of the wall. Yeah. And we have this uh, Mance Raider callback where... Tormund is talking about like how many people Mance killed by his pride. It's kind of a callback to a callback almost. Yeah, because they already had that line from Danny in the cave, which was straight up a quote from right. John in season five, I guess. Not to jump ahead of ourselves all the way to the end of the episode, but it seems like Tormund's words may have had some effect on young John here, yeah. reminding him of how Mance died, quote unquote, for his pride. John at the end of the episode obviously does bend the knee. I feel like they're at least drawing a thread there. I kind of expected maybe one more scene in there of dialogue. Having seen the end of the episode, it carries a little more weight than it should in terms of maybe convincing John because mm, yeah. the only argument he's heard for bending the knee is basically about his pride as opposed to like cost benefit of trusting this person who could help him win the war. Mm -hmm. And you know, how much should he trust or how much help is she as opposed to just his own ego, which doesn't seem like it was ever that huge uh, a factor in it. It had to do a lot with John just being sure that this was the best for everyone. I, I don't think that it was just John's pride, just because yeah. that doesn't strike mm -hmm. me as a Jon Snow kind of thing to do. He was, mm -hmm. and he made that clear throughout the rest of the season. He's not withholding because of his pride. He wasn't sure if it was the best decision for the North. As the episode progresses, jumping ahead a little, <laughs> he sees that he can trust Daenerys to act in the best interests of the North now that she sees the urgency of the situation. 
the only thing holding him back, anchoring him to not bending the knee at this point, the wildlings, like they wouldn't follow him um, if he bent the knee, but they've come south of the wall now mm. and they've learned that it's not all bad just kneeling and sort of thing. There's more to it than that. And it's about their yeah. survival. Right. Oh, so you think that Tormund, what Tormund said is less about the content and more about the fact that Tormund is on board, therefore he needs to reconsider. Yeah, I, I think he was more like it's part of their culture. We do not kneel, but now he's like, well, when it comes down to it, we kind of have already. It's okay, John. If you think this is the best for everybody, go ahead and do it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way either. So then John and Tormund have their talk, but Gendry also has this little chat with the Brotherhood. It almost felt like I could have watched him talk to them for a little bit longer, I feel like. Um, <laughs> yeah. Kind of got cut off. natural. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of lingered on Sandor a bit there. I almost felt like they were trying to stick that whinging reference as they were trying to make a meme out of it later on like whinging well you're whinging anything anything sandor says apparently becomes a meme for the show so they know <laughs> to throw chickens and all that kind of stuff at him that's true but those were great lines at the time i don't know if this one holds up to the chicken level <laughs> and the what do they name their swords oh, but man. i mean it was it was okay it's pretty it insists upon itself <laughs> i will say this episode did seem to be a lot about sandor maybe more than any of the other Magnificent Seven. Yeah. yeah. He did get a lot of FaceTime. Yeah. You know, a lot to do with fire and all that, which makes sense given mm -hmm. the nature of their quest. And he was the one who, in some ways, carries that prophetic knowledge. He's the one who can identify that, ah, yes, that's the mountain that looks like an arrowhead, though I still mm -hmm. think that Matt and my prediction from last episode where they launch mm -hmm. <laughs> True. Gregor Clegane into the air at a dragon as the mountain that looks like an arrowhead still hasn't been debunked. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be. It's true. Yeah. And then Clegane yeah. Exactly. It all works. Yeah. It's definitely still coming. <laughs> it's one of those misleading prophecies. Uh, the other thing I really liked about the scene with the Brotherhood Without Banners and Gendry is after last episode, they really wanted to play up how much Gendry was like Robert, that he was ready for battle, that mm -hmm. he felt like he knew what he was getting into. And this scene with the whinging line... They're saying, Gendry, you're still not, you don't really know what you're getting into right now. Like, the winter really sucks. Bad stuff happened to you, but so did everybody else. Look at Barrack. And I felt like this was extremely reminiscent of um, John and Tyrion at Castle Black, where after oh. John gets ambushed by Pip and Gren, John starts laying out exactly the same way Gendry does about his problems with his life. Right. And Tyrion's like, what are you talking about? Your life's been pretty great. Calm down. The degrees are different because Gendry's had a much worse life than John as a bastard, but yeah. it's I think it's supposed to be reminiscent of that to remind you that Gendry's the greenhorn in this group. That's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Definitely. Thoros and Beric didn't know that Gendry was the bastard son of Robert Baratheon when they sold him, but now they should know because Gendry knows, because Gendry didn't mm -hmm. know at the time either. And the Brotherhood states that they don't serve a king, they only serve King Robert, even after Robert Baratheon's death. Oh. Why is this not a part that has been brought up hmm. and hmm. Yeah. weighed upon in the show? Interesting, yeah. And it goes to a larger point, which is, we don't know what Gendry's purpose in the story is, or ever was, other than, you know, being a friend to Arya early on. It's possible that he'll become Lord of Storm's End for some reason, and it's possible that he won't. I think that they are poising Gendry to take that up hmm. and play a role similar to how they've set up Sam with the death of hmm. uh, Randall and Dickon. And so that by John being able to place these people as lords of various regions, they can unite and muster, rally those forces. Hmm. Though, regarding what George R. R. Martin has planned for Gendry, we don't necessarily know exactly, but we have somewhat of a clue. Um, last year at Balticon, 
user Lydia Lamont hmm. disclosed to everyone in the meetup thread. She went to the dinner with George R. R. Martin hmm. and had a chance to ask a question. She got too nervous and asked about Arya and Gendry, and <laughs> George R. R. Martin replied was, I'll visit them again, but I don't want to spoil anything for you. They're still very young. So mm. that they may be meeting again is confirmed. Nice. Well, that actually would make sense because Liana and Arya are very similar. And then Robert and his bastard marrying. Oh. It would be like the completion of that pact that Whoa. never actually happened. I've never heard that take on it. But that's that's a really interesting way to look yeah. at it. Also, in the books, we have um, obviously Ed- Edric Storm, who's poised to take the Lordship yeah. of Storm's End. Which frees Gendry up to do other. I mean, maybe Gendry ends up Lord of Storm's End as well. I don't know. I'm I'm just saying that there's this other character who could mm-hmm. absorb that, and they've combined them for the show. Also, like how in the show they have set random Dornish guard number fifteen up to become the Lord of Sunspear now. <laughs> mm-hmm. True, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. After Gendry chats with the Brotherhood, John and Jorah do bond a little bit. I mean, they they talk about uh, Ned comes up in every scene. I would say. That John is in. Jorah talks about Ned a little bit. Found, mm-hmm. I thought it was odd, I don't know about you guys, that John was like, oh, well, I'm glad he didn't catch you. Because Jorah sold people into slavery. Like, it's okay if he catches. Yeah. I mean, I, I get what they were. I know it's camaraderie and all that, but like. Yeah. That was, I think, the qualm that I had. Sort of goes against the moral code that the Starks would have held. Right. Yeah. And I thought they did a really good job of wrapping up questions about. Longclaw and how John and Jorah ought to feel up towards one another, yeah. given Ned Stark's history with Jorah. And so, even if I disagree with how I think it should go, I think they did a good job of wrapping that up. Because Ned's really instilled them with a sense of honor their entire life. And for the John just kind of throw that away, I guess the generous reading of that is saying like John has learned to go beyond just the stoic nature of Ned's honor and to see the nuances in certain things. Mm -hmm. I think it would be better off if they were backwards, like we had in the last cast, where Jorah actually wants Longclaw because he feels like he has redeemed himself and that he left that sword with Gior as like, I have tarnished my honor, but now I've earned it back. I've helped free slaves in Marine. Because one of these things in zombie movies is, (laughs) well, like what they're doing up north of the wall is the zombie conflict is not really great drama because it's just like a sudden urge of death. Like you need drama between the characters around that. That's like what the Walking Dead does early on in its run. I think having John and Jorah be more at each other's throats? Not not so bros, but kind of like very uneasy with each other and Jorah's like making this very uncomfortable. Jorah makes a lot of things uncomfortable. Like that's where you generate that makes this stuff interesting. But as it's played up, it's like St. John and St. Jorah. Yeah. It's like... Yeah, fan favorite characters they're gonna love each other <laughs> it's like back down in Winterfell when you have this conflict between Arya and Sansa that shouldn't happen it does happen but up here at the wall when you have a conflict that should happen it doesn't happen I think that John seems like he would be the kind of person still willing to give it up to Jorah but I don't think that John's the kind of person who would excuse slavery and the laws like that I think the tension would be that Jorah thinks that he deserves Longclaw and should have it but John, not necessarily that he thinks he should have Longclaw, but... Jorah doesn't deserve it. Jorah should be beheaded. <laughs> right, because... right. <laughs> and so it's a tension of, like, John... It's an internal and, like, uh, interpersonal conflict because John's like, 
understands that he needs Jorah to stay alive because A, this person is crucial for his alliance to Daenerys, but also B, this person is crucial for the survival of the maximum amount of people and keeping people from becoming whites. Yeah, right. He feels he might not have the authority. Did you say that you think Jon's alliance with Danny rests on Jorah? Well, he can't behead Jorah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. He doesn't have the authority to behead Jorah for breaking one of... So there are like four taboos in Westerosi (laughs) culture, right? It's guest right, Mm -hmm. incest, kinslaying, and slavery. Those are the four taboos. Jorah broke one of those. Yeah, he should be seen more like how the Starks currently see the phrase. (laughs) I had um, two separate readings of this. One's generous, one is not. The generous reading is that Jorah has decided he's now Barristan to Danny. Hmm. He no longer wants to find glory for himself. He's just happy to serve as a, like, to be a member of her Queen's Guard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why he gave up the sword because it's like, in his mind, he has taken the white cloak of Danny. Oh. The less generous reading is that they are still competing for Danny and they are sort of trying to out humble each other. John offers oh. a sword, which is incredibly humble. Jorah turns it down, which is even more <laughs> humble, and they're just trying to, like, out-perfect each other. No you! No you! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Just, I think that's an interesting reading. No, you're such a good person. You should have... No! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I th- uh, that's my that's my less generous reading <laughs> of that interaction. That's hilarious. Thus, does Longclaw, even though we shouldn't have swords symbolize people and women, like, their trophies, that is Longclaw in this yes. conversation, because he's like, Jorah, uh, you should have it, and Jorah says, no, John, you have it, and it ultimately ends up with John. And Jorah says to him, so your kids can have it. Yes. Implying fertility oh. with the sword. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, the phallus. Yeah. Yes. Wow, guys. Yeah. All right. The symbolism's yeah. out of control. This, yeah, the symbolism is out of control. This episode has so many layers. I feel like I'm reading the Da Vinci Code right now. <laughs> <laughs> the Germ Code. The D&D code. Yeah. Corn code. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we get this cute little scene with Tormund and Sandor bonding. You're the one they call the dog. It was it was fine, I guess. They bonded somewhat. <laughs> it was the comic relief of the episode. Yeah. They thought it would be funny that uh, Tormund didn't know the word dick. That's humorous, I guess. Why would... For all the other words for penises that he Why knows. Why wouldn't he know the word dick? Yeah. I have no idea. I guess member is his... Because they're trying to sell t-shirts, just like with Winging. Dick? With a question mark? <laughs> that that actually, that t-shirt with would face, sell. I would buy that. Yeah, <laughs> I would buy that too. Tormund, not knowing the term for dick, is an interesting idea if it was something that was built into the series more in terms of world building yeah. and the different sort of uh, dialects totally. that exist in each region. Totally. Mm-hmm. But... Right. I think this is going to be a setup mm-hmm. and a payoff. Uh, you think there's going to be like... Yeah. Somehow, a long, a long joke. Do you think Tormund's gonna walk up to someone and like start talking about his dick and like be really proud about it because he knows <laughs> dick that on? word? Or is that? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is just a dick on joke. Oh, unfortunately, this was just That's establishing that joke. dick is in fact a slang term. Maybe it will feed into the brothel and honeycomb joke later on when they finally resolve that. Perfect. <laughs> no. That's never getting resolved. That's the. uh from uh, Calvin and Hobbes, the spaghetti incident, the noodle incident. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no idea what it was. Yeah. I thought the one thing this uh, interaction did do for the two of them, they really played up Sandor and Fire, mm-hmm. that Tormund knew about mm-hmm. it, and that this is his thing, and then they call it back later where he continues to have big problems with Fire in this episode. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I think the rest of it was comedic relief and just the two of them being really funny together, well, mostly. No, and, and they do talk about Brienne, which is kind of interesting um, to see 
her through their eyes. I don't know. That, that, uh, yeah. I don't know. What, what did you guys think about that? I'm really curious. Torbend and Brienne is not the OTP. Jamie and Brienne is yes. the OTP. True. But it's, uh, what does work is that they brought up Brienne earlier in the episode mm-hmm. and reminded us, I guess, that she exists, even though everyone knows she exists, and then brought her again later in the episode. Yeah, right. She's like a Chekhov's Brienne. So- I mean, there's like a continuity that ties together the episode because of Brienne. On a gut level, like Tormund's dumb line about you know our babies would be monsters, you know that 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 made me laugh. <laughs> that, that was like knee slapping laughter just from the the shock of it. So I don't know. I maybe there's some value to it just from that. Clearly, Brienne is more interested in Jamie than in Tormund, but like. Mm. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Tormund is a better person than Jamie. Show Jamie especially has not really been redeemed for a lot of the things he did and is still complicit in all kinds of terribleness on all fronts, whereas Tormund is like fighting for the survival of every single one of his people. So, wow. Tormund and Brienne. Tormund mm. is better than Jamie. This Mic is, drop. There I said This it. is the hot take I've been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is why we had you on. <laughs> No, that's an interesting perspective, though, because, yeah, I mean, as much as we love Jamie, it, at this point, at the very least, aiding and abetting this mad woman who's, you know, blowing people up at random. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't know. That, that, I'm going to have to chew on that for a while, Brian. I don't know. It just feels paternalistic because it's not about, like, what people think is best for Brienne. Brienne that's true. doesn't want torment, and she's made that true. clear, and he just keeps forcing his attention on her, and Brienne wants Jamie. Yeah. It's true. Brienne, yeah. Oh, I totally agree that like she he should leave her alone if she's not interested in him. However, like if I were Brienne's friend, I would advise her that Tormund seems like a better guy than Jamie. But like he should leave her alone after like she clearly doesn't. Right. I, I I see what you're saying. Yeah. There's maybe a, a sort of out of universe world where if you put these characters together, Tor- Tormund would be a better person than Jamie. That that alone is an interesting thought. Honestly, comparing Tormund and Jamie in terms of morality, that could be a whole. Maester Monthly Thunderdome segment. Oh my god. Uh. <laughs> oh man, yeah. the Battle of the Ships. Oh, <gasps> a naval battle. Yeah, a naval there battle. There we go. Oh, this this is good already. <laughs> and then Euron just crashes in. Where is Euron? Oh, hold on. Euron. Where- Nobody okay, knows. Okay, just quickly. Where is Euron? It's been a couple of episodes. What happened to Pilo Osbeck being like, oh, Euron, he's going to be an even worse villain than Ramsey. We saw him for like a minute. And, like, where is he now? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that they were exactly sure how much of him they wanted to include in this season, because they weren't sure how fans were going to react, so they gave us, like, a teaser, and he would probably Hmm. be back more for next season. That's what we thought about season six, though. Hmm. I think, I do think it would be a good call, if that's what they did, to show how much more terrible people are than (laughs) the supernatural force, because humans are the real evil. Yes. Wait, humans are the real mm-hmm. monsters? I've never what? heard of The real monsters were the <laughs> no, friends never, we made yeah. along the way. <laughs> what? I'm wondering if they cut a bunch of torture scenes. That would be a good idea on their part. Speaking of being cut repeatedly, John and Beric have <laughs> a <damn> chat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> finally, someone who appreciates my segues. <laughs> um... Yeah, John and I, I really liked John and Beric's chat this episode, both about, you know, Ned as a person, but then also about their roles as. Yeah. It was, it was very meta, especially with Benjen coming in later. Them talking mm, about, like, true. why are we still around as characters? Like, why would the author keep us alive? 
um <laughs> well clearly we have some plot purpose to fulfill like that it was very explicit i enjoyed seeing them two kind of hash out like oh neither of them know anything about what happened to them mm-hmm. um you i always kind of got the feeling that john was holding back what he really saw or what really happened to him while he was dead mm. and i thought maybe with barrack because he's like guys they've both gone through the same thing maybe they would let it out and it's like no neither of them know what happened <laughs> they're kind of like yeah. uh i was dead for a while then i came back and i also like their meta discussion about how barrack keeps himself going yeah like after dying six times mm-hmm. and after he's lost just about everything in his life and i thought that was an interesting way of communicating that to john who is uh i've said this in previous casts i think he's really struggling with depression ever since he came back and he keeps making these crazy suicidal moves barrack may have convinced them like maybe pump the brakes on those a little bit although we see later in the episode he does yeah i was gonna say yeah um (laughs) he's still full throttle he actually has a conscious or subconscious death wish then that is a better explanation for his actions than just he's stupid or the writing is stupid so i like that i'm gonna go with that that's my head (laughs) you're welcome i'm glad i could help you that's right barrick's sort of embraced this faith aspect of it where he's like well i guess i'm along for the ride who knows whereas john is obviously he doesn't even want to think about it yeah or acknowledge this which it was smart to pit the two of them together and i kind of wish at the end of the episode that barrick was going south with john because i would like to see barrick as sort of a mentor figure to john in some ways especially as that proxy for ned because you know barrick was an extension of ned's will back when he was sent off to fight the mountain so, so on the uh, in-depth discussion thread, uh, a user named Free Jerry Two, the the word two, suggests that the conversation between John and Beric is less about, or, or or maybe is entirely about, you know, giving them purpose. But it also suggests that we are not going to learn more about what motivates the White Walkers, what motivates the Night King, but rather just like that we as the viewers should accept that these are the living, those are the dead, and that should be enough for us. And I think that's an interesting interpretation of what the showrunners might be doing. I really hope that isn't what they're doing, because I think that would be bad writing. But it's possible that that's what they're communicating to us, or, or intending to communicate to us, or that it's just the case. I, I think it's an interesting thought. Yeah. I can see that. It's a sort of a um, don't look too closely because it doesn't make sense. I mean, George does that sometimes. Like, if you really look into skin changing and green sight and all of it, none of it makes sense when you break it down. You're kind of better right. off just sort of not yeah. trying to delve too deep. It's not about that there may be a god. It's that Beric believes that there is a yeah. god who has a purpose for Absolutely. him. And that, that that's what drives him as a person in the story. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's definitely more about the character, which, I mean, to their credit, they're, I think, taking pretty seriously in the show. They're not having the Lord of Light show up or anything. <laughs> well, maybe. No. It's <laughs> Melisandre. It's Bran. Oh, my God. Yeah, Bran is all the gods, so... <laughs> in the books the others don't have the night king at least not that's been revealed yet mm. there's still just this ominous threat that's coming and so it's not about exactly who they are and what they are it's about what they represent right. to humanity yeah totally. i think there is something to be said for the argument that one of the morals of the story certainly of john's story is you don't need to know everything you'll need to know that you're on the right side and then fight for it even if you don't necessarily understand every angle or fully comprehend the nature of your enemy, you know, if you know what's right, then that can be all you need to know. That is an interesting moral to give, but I do like hope that we learn more about the White Walkers so they're not a, like a one-dimensional evil that they've been for the last six and a half seasons and five books. Yeah, I, I think there's a way to do both, right? To, to have us learn more about them, but they're also still mm-hmm. the enemy. And I think this thing that Beric says about just knowing what the enemy is and fighting that is enough, that's definitely like some deep ass waft theme that George is, is shooting for, I think. Cause I think that's what you see 
most of his character arcs building towards is like you either choose to do the right thing or be a hero or you don't and if you don't then you die uh, the person you were a failure basically not not a failure but mm-hmm. you know you have brienne at the end of the crossroads which is always what i come back to making the choice to defend the innocent like that that's that's like the core of the series. So yeah, Beric, that line from Beric in this episode was spot on. Speaking of threats to humanity, particularly Thoros and Beric, they run into a polar bear, just like in Balto. Um, <laughs> what a reference. Thank you. <laughs> this episode actually reminded me a lot of Balto. Um, so I'm just throwing that out there. I was thinking there. his dark materials. Oh, his dark. Iorin Burns and. Yeah, good call. Thought he was a sign that Coca-Cola should never release a blue Coke. <laughs> True. <laughs> never again. Uh, uh, so this this polar bear just sort of charges in and manages to take out a couple of extras. Um, it's not clear. How, I'm not sure how many extras they started with. Uh, they killed more than I thought they had to begin with. So I think it was like five. Six, okay, maybe. that sounds right then. And obviously Thoros gets his terrible injury here because Sandor Clegane can't take the shot. He cannot. Yeah because he's, he's having flashbacks to Blackwater. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance. <laughs> I thought it was interesting they played up the fire a bit after talking about it with Tormund that Sandor just sort of stood there and watched. I feel like how much they're playing it up recently means it's going to be a plot point sometime mm-hmm. soon that Sandor is either going to have to get over his fear of fire and do something or he's going to let another terrible thing happen. I, th- I feel like that's kind of where they're going with this. Uh, it was so dramatic that they just had him, they gave him a, a solo shot and just had him staring at the fire. They didn't do that for really anybody else yeah, in the, um. It's not the first, I mean, that's not the last time it happens this episode either. What's, what's yeah. the report? How blunt they've been this season. I feel like that's a pretty good thing to pay yeah, attention to. Yeah, good point, right. They're, they're, if, yeah, they're mm-hmm. not being subtle. So if they're playing someone up that much, it's gonna come back. So what do we think the payoff is? <sighs> Gets over his fear of fire. He fixes the cable. Setting the mountain on fire, right? I mean... I think it's going to have to do with Sansa. Oh. Who's kissed by Ooh. fire. But also because George R. R. Martin, an associate Martin, someone asked him if Sansa in the veil, like her being comforted or like having there being like an old dog there that follows her around mm. is relevant whatsoever. And he says something about mm. like, you'll see or whatever, as he does. Oh. Uh. <laughs> So it seems Keep like reading. a foreshadowing of like the Hound and Sansa or something. Absolutely. You know what? That is terrible. And I, you know what? I, I'm appointing myself the Coast Guard. I'm going to police the ships. The Sandor and Sansa ship makes no sense. It's terrible. It's gross and weird. Everybody should get off. Find like a lifeboat. Don't be on that ship. We just lost so many fans. That's not my ship. And I don't think it's implying that there's a ship. I think it's just implying that Sandor will play a role in Sansa's story. George has acknowledged that the ship exists. And he's heard about it. And he yeah. hates it as much as I do. Welcome to the Coast Guard, George. I mean, Michael and I are on the good ship SS Johnza, but yes. you know. Johnza is endgame. <laughs> that's our Yeah. That's our flags. It's uh, not because of love, <laughs> it's because of practicality. Right. Yeah. Once they find out yeah. they're cousins, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, 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 um anyway, we're gonna bring that up every <laughs> single goddamn <laughs> yep. episode. So Toot deal toot. with it. Wait, what about John and Arya? We keep forgetting mm. about the best. You notice ship. how like we change the topic every time you bring up John and Arya. <laughs> I don't know why. It's such a good... <laughs> it's a great ship. Speaking of ships, 
Jorah and Thoros then bond together a little bit over the storming of Pike, uh, which happened oh, yeah. because they got off ships at the isle, the islands. That's why it was oh, a joke. Oh, I like the, I like the other thing you were, oh, where you were going. Yeah, also, I like the idea ship. of Jorah and Thoros being a yeah. ship. I was like, oh, okay. Joros. Well, I guess that's dead now, but... Yeah. First off, didn't we call this last Quill and Tankers that they were going to talk about the ship? siege of Pike? Oh, uh, oh yeah. Breach? Yeah, I guess we did. Yeah. I suppose so. So, big ups to us. Um... I guess. Good job. Yeah. Way to go, us. <laughs> Way yeah. to go, Maester Munch. Like, you guys are great. Wow. Um, no, I, I, very, I very much like this because, first off, it's Thoros' last words were just the drunkest. So there, there was a review of this episode that maybe gave it a little too much credit, but it was from Alyssa Rosenberg at Washington Post. And she talks about how one of the big things this episode is the how people's perceptions of history can change how they think about it. And so you have this really interesting conversation then between... Jorah and Thoros, where Jorah's going, wow, you know, you look like a hero. And Thoros is going, nah, I was just super drunk. Like, I wasn't a hero. <laughs> but, you know, obviously Jorah's been going through life thinking that Thoros was very brave. And so just taking that as a, as sort of a thematic marker for the rest of the episode, this idea of one person looks at history one way, another person looks at it a different way. We might not actually know the truth necessarily. Yeah, there was another point that you brought up too, right? About the difference of how John talks a lot about Ned this episode and refers to him as his father and it's like he's the most honorable honorable man I know all that kind of stuff and for one thing he's you know he obviously had this very dark secret so he's he's maybe not as honorable as John thought he was about John's parentage but also that's not his father that's just who he's been raised to think his father is so I think there's that element of it too to the the history side yeah John believes that history is one way and it's really not yeah yeah that's about to come to a head with um, what seems like the R plus L equals J reveal and which side you fall on of wh- how you think of Rhaegar and his actions with Lyanna. Yeah. That is the classic one in the story. The North and those that were allied uh, with Robert Baratheon think that Rhaegar is a terrible person, whereas those who are allied with the Targaryens think that he was in love and what he did was right. totally fine. Which side of history you're on kind of dictates that kind right. of stuff. Yeah. Are we going to get more on that this season, or is there going to be another tease if we do get anything? I feel like they got to do it next episode. I mean, we have so much time left next episode. We have like 80 minutes. So. That's true. If if we could just get Bran to sit down with John, I mean, I feel like that would cover a lot of that ground pretty quickly. Well, they're heading down to King's Landing, so I guess we'll see if he has time to get back up to Winterfell. That's true. Yeah. Be nice if he just popped by and sort of solved I think everyone's they problems. Should do a spin off that is uh, on Nickelodeon, and they should call it uh, Rhaegar Explains It All, starring Melissa Joan Hart. And we'll just do oh. all the things we need to Perfect. know about Castor It'll be great. <laughs> she does have long blonde hair. Yeah. In Clarissa Explains It All. Does. So. Wow. Does he like ladders? <laughs> That's a deep reference. I got it, though. With the ladders. That's why it was the Tower of Joy. Yeah. Yeah. So that they yes. could go up the ladder. There's a like, ladder. Exactly. Yeah. How Mance used to climb up the castle walls. And... Wow. wow. Oh, yeah, because Mance is Or Rhaegar. maybe it's actually secretly Thoros, because Thoros climbed up the castle walls of Pike. Thoros is actually Rhaegar. He's just too drunk to remember that he's Rhaegar. <gasps> <gasps> yes! <laughs> what? We solved it. We did it. We, we solved it. I feel like this is all um, true. A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> We're moving on to the Magnificent Seven, um, who stumble across a scouting party, I guess. Like, it's sort of in the canyons up north. They're doing a lot of Wild West type stuff this season. Mm-hmm. This was this was the classic banditos looking down, da- or the Tuscan Raiders maybe, looking down on Obi-Wan. They obviously managed to set like a little trap 
and capture a white. So there were some interesting mechanics that get raised in this episode. Mm-hmm. Matt, why don't you just jump in about it? Yeah. This is my jam. Okay. When you kill the white walker who raised any amount of the dead, when he dies or they die, I don't know if they have gender, all the whites they have raised fall to dust. They just crumple over right away, which is interesting because if you look at the examples of John and Cold Hands and Barrack, we see Thoros die in this episode and Barrack does not fall over. So that is not <laughs> universal, I guess. There's also the idea that that they have like their own little personal armies within the White Walker society. These were his troops with one that belonged to somebody else. Maybe like, I'm not sure what they were doing there, but they kind of travel around with their, like, their own little feudal armies, if that makes any sense. That's what it seems like it was communicating, which is a pretty big culture reveal for them that they have ownership of their whites. I think that's a very generous reading of it. My least generous reading is they just <laughs> want to set it up so they can wrap it up at the end when John kills the Night King and then all the whites crumble and that solves the end of the story, which I'm pretty sure is not going to happen in the books because George has mentioned before that uh, a lot of what he cares about with the end of the Lord of the Rings is like what kind of policies pursued with regards to the orcs. Like, do they hunt down all the orc babies? Do they go after all of them? So it's like, what do they do with the remaining White Walkers? And does is it all about genocide? And so I don't know if... I don't think that that kind of system may exist in the books because that would wrap it up too neatly for what George seems like he wants to emphasize in the epilogue of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't lend itself Probably well not. to a scouring of the Shire style <laughs> ending, does it? Unless you have a scouring of the Shire where you defeat all the the Night King and all the White Walkers are easily cleaned up, and then it turns out Cersei like burned Winterfell again or something. The other interesting mechanic that um, was revealed is that a lot of people have thought for a long time that the White Walkers and their Whites were kind of hive minded, that they were all connected at the same mm -hmm. time in some weird way and it turns out no because when they capture the last white after killing the white walker and all the rest of his whites go down it screams it so they use verbal communications yeah. between each other as they were attacking the other white walkers didn't know it happened until they heard the scream and then the whites came charging which also implies a, a, a degree of sentience among, yeah. about them I don't think a lot of people thought they really had. My personal headcanon is I thought they were like being skin changed all the time. Yeah, me too. Right. Totally. But apparently that's not true. They rely on communication between the different factions of the Whites and the White Walkers. I know we said earlier that we shouldn't necessarily, maybe we shouldn't be diving too deep into, but I like, <laughs> I um, said no, this. But, but oh, no. I, I feel like there is an extent to which it does raise some questions that need answering, right? Just sort of the basic mechanics of the others controlling their Whites. Which, yeah, I always just assumed was basically mass skin changing, like sort of hive mind skin changing, like Independence Day. Yeah. Um, and that they were going to win by uploading a virus to the Night's King's brain um, <laughs> with Jeff Goldblum at the helm. Um, Ooh, I want Jeff Goldblum. Actually, to yeah, Jeff Goldblum could guest star as like Howlin' Reed or something. And <laughs> Oh my God. Ooh. That would be the best. That would oh be so my good. God. He, you know, he looks up and sees the others on the horizon. Just checkmate. 
I feel bad for that white walker in there because it's yeah. like he was like going out on the scouting party and he just got killed. I was wondering if like was he lobbying to have this scouting reconnaissance mission <laughs> with the Night King? Like, yo, we gotta send people out <laughs> to scout the terrain ahead. And he's in the Night King's like, I don't think we should do that. We should just keep going as this horde. Our formation's great. <laughs> look at look at the Lannisters. They do the exact same thing. And then he just like walks ahead and he gets he gets wasted instantly. Yep. It kind of also plays into like dumbing down the threat of the white walkers and stuff when you yeah. have somebody kind of just get killed immediately like that and it's like oh they're just they're no different than anybody else that's yeah isn't that kind of the point i guess so it dulls the threat of the white walker down to do that and the the others if they can just be instantly killed and it's the same thing later like when you have the dragon finally show up and you reveal like boom they can just come in and wipe the floor with everything is this threat really everything that we thought and a bag of potato chips it almost felt to me like back at Hard Home was like level six John, and now we're seeing like level fourteen John, and he can take down a White Walker <laughs> with his you know advanced moves and his souped up magic sword. I don't know. It it did feel like we had that very extended boss battle in Hard Home, where he and a White Walker go toe to toe, and he almost dies and gets thrown right. through a wall. And here he does manage the few fancy footworks to take down a White Walker, and it's gonna happen as the story progresses. The White Walkers are going to be on screen more and die more. But uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of their threat being minimized. That's true. I did headcanon this, that uh, the fact that he had so few whites with him that he went down like a punk. I thought this might be like Craster's last kid. Hmm. Like one of the newest oh, yeah. White Walkers. Right. Maybe this is thinking too deeply about it, but like, and I'm also combining a little bit of what we've seen in the books about the others. And it isn't so bad to me the idea that the white walkers can be easily defeated by valyrian steel it's a catch of like remembering that when it comes down to it there isn't that much valyrian steel and i think the difference is that in the show it seems like there are so few white walkers whereas in the books we don't know how many they are and the books have done a little more to humanize the others and show that they're basically just like humans with magic like they laugh and that's something i don't see Mm -hmm. in the way that the others are portrayed in the show because to me like i understand that they seem creepy and that's what they're playing out like they're the these horror villains by being so stiff but the way that i see it what's scarier than a villain that seems stoic is a villain that thinks that you are nothing and is willing to laugh in your face because you are so nothing. Yeah, right. You're on. Yeah. But I I got off track from what I was thinking of, like, the others being vulnerable. Their real strength lies, to an extent, in their numbers through the whites. True. And in some ways, that's kind of similar, right, to the way that the Westerosi lords and kings are. Everyone as a single person is fallible, but it's a numbers game. How many people do you have protecting you? And that's like goes back to Vary's question of who does a soldier pick? And it's like it still builds on that idea of power is fragile and it has to do with the number of people that you've convinced to go for your cause and protect you. Whoa, I, I really like that tying Probably it. too deep. I love that tying it but- to uh <laughs> Yeah, I think that was perfect with what we see from uh, Tyrion and Danny later. They bring up almost all those points in a, in a different way, but you apply them very well to the White Walkers. 
it seems like the show also wants to have the sense of fragility in also the dragons as well yeah. because they come in here and they wipe the floor immediately with the white walkers but in the past two battles we've seen two of them get taken down quite easily so all cersei has to do is line king's landing with scorpions and she's pretty much fine so the rules that they're establishing right now seem very malleable yeah, yeah. um well so after they do learn all this about sort of white walker mechanics they capture their white gendry mm. gets sent off to east watch um he's doing the marathon run the marathon run from greek history <laughs> the 20 um whatever it was the guy who died at the end of his run uh gendry's obviously in much better shape um than that guy gendry rent he's the fastest yeah he's the fastest which wasn't exactly established earlier but... no but he is like the youngest one there so he's also got cardio from rowing yeah a lot of cardio Wait, he's younger than John. He's one year younger than Jon Snow. I figured he should be younger because he would be conceived after Robert attained kingship. Why does John think that Gendry is the fastest? Clearly, I mean, it, it makes sense that he is, but why does John think that? And also, why are they telling us that? It must have some greater purpose. I don't think he thinks he is the fastest. I think he was the youngest and the most vulnerable, so he sent him running back. Also, he didn't have a dragon glass weapon, which they didn't really address this at all in the episode. But if go back frame by frame and zoom in on their weapons, you know, what you'll see is that everyone except Gendry is carrying some sort of dragon glass tool. Uh, the Hound has hatchets that are made of dragon glass. Uh, Tormund is carrying this big old war axe made of dragon glass. Even the extras have spears, but Gendry just has his hammer. So maybe that was also part of John's thinking was like, okay, Gendry's not going to be as useful in this fight. He's young. He's spry. Let's send him off. In the last episode, Gendry really was his own hype squad. Even with uh, the nameless extras, those are implied to be like experienced wildlings that right. Tormund trusts. So they're good fighters. Gendry might actually be the biggest liability in this yeah. party. Yeah. And so I think he's more or less saving Gendry's life and not harming the party as much. It was the right. I mean, yeah, it made sense. Although it's a, it was a little weird, like after last episode, bringing him out of retirement, you know, and he's like, he's heading off to war. And then this episode, they're like, ah, slow your roll, kid. Why don't you just go back to Eastwatch? <laughs> So then obviously we have, after Gendry escapes, we have them fleeing to the lake. Now, I can't believe that in the inside the episode, they didn't cite Stannis Baratheon as their inspiration for cutting holes in the lake and having the White Walkers yeah. fall in. It's absolutely the... Okay. <laughs> or Cantus. Yeah. yeah. Well, they wouldn't cite Cantus, but like <laughs> Cantus totally called it. Like it's his night lamp theory. Yes. Exactly. That's like um. literally like the show wanted to have their Stannis Baratheon night lamp moment exactly and obviously for those who don't know cantus many years ago wrote this great theory called the night lamp about how stannis baratheon is going to use false beacons stannis of course at this time camped outside of winterfell yes about ready to face off up against the bolton army yes that also has frakes there in the books yes um half of the Frey army is at winterfell in the books and stannis is getting ready to face off against these people and this exactly. is his plan yeah in the beginning of the Winds of Winter, to lure the Frey cavalry onto the frozen lake at the Crofter's Village, thereby defeating them by when they all fall into the lake. His soldiers are currently punching holes in the lake and things like that. So this, the whites tumbling into the frozen lake certainly seems <laughs> related to this plot point. Obviously, we don't know technically that it is a thing that will happen in the books. And this is from the book series, A Song of Ice and Fire, um... Which is by the author George R. R. Martin. What? what? I've never <laughs> heard of it. No, no, no. We don't yeah. read. We've never read those we've books. We've never read the books. We've never watched the show. Yep. 
we just podcast based off of various uh, subreddit posts that we've seen yeah. and articles that we've read and just piece the things together. <laughs> I experienced the show solely through leak clips of gifts that are posted <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, which you can till- clearly tell are from the leaks because they have a red filter hue over them and they are have bad contrast. Fun People fact. should stop doing that. Fun fact, everybody, yeah. I thought this was maximum Stannis shaming. They took his... Uh, they took his plan and then just made it work while he's dead for many seasons. It's now. really, it's so hollow in this moment because it's like when Stannis comes up with this plan, it's about his intelligence and ability to understand the lay of the land and his military yeah. stri- stratagem. Strategeries? His military strategery <laughs> and how he can, he can make an advantage out of nothing. Yeah. But in here, it's like, whoa, we got to find some place to go. Here's a lake. This also happened in the movie Balto. I just want everyone to know. You're right. A, it does happen frozen in Balto. lake in Balto. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think Maester Monthly can officially endorse Balto. Yes, not as a Balto 2. Um, oh, no, no. I think Balto should endorse us. That's right. Speaking of that's Balto, right. yes. where's Ghost? Hashtag Wolfwatch2017. Hashtag where's Ghost. Also, <laughs> hashtag where's Edmure? Also, where's Edmure's wolf? <laughs> and uh, where's that. Ghost Edmure? Yes, um, <laughs> where's Edmure's ghost? Oh my god! Um, um, well, we've got this shot here, this really cool shot that I loved of when you get to see all the our magnificent seven or magnificent six. They're like standing on this island. You can see the little eyes peeking out at them in the darkness. And I kind of wish that. Uh, with as fast as the episode was moving, that we lingered on this moment a bit more. What was going on in their heads? Here are these people at the edge of the world, and you have a dead army staring back at you. Like, what is that like mm-hmm. to be in that moment? Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. We could have hung there a little bit more, even if it's just the hound looking around, going, "Uh, bugger this," you know, um, <laughs> classic hound. Yeah, and then uh, this moment passes rather quickly, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they wake up and they discover that the Red Priest yep. has passed away in the middle of the night. What do you guys think about that? I guess someone had to die. He's, he's unfortunately the least important of those. Thoros is kind of like a one-line character most of the time. Where he, he kind of keeps, he hits the same beat where he's drunk and he says things about the Lords of Light and yeah. like right. is disillusioned. And he's not somebody that draws people into the show like the other ones do they've really played for a sure. Eric this year mm-hmm. for that purpose unfortunately if you made a list of the characters that could die i think thoros was on the top of it and i think that's why he went i really love him in the books and in the show but just the way you have to run a television show he is the most expendable there it, they also had him die because now it ups the stakes for john and it ups the stakes for Beric mm-hmm. because the moment thoros isn't with their party like though melisandre still in the game that means that Beric's yeah. cheat code is <laughs> no longer around. Yeah, right. True. There's this great post on the sub in the in-depth discussion titles it Farewell to Thoros. Oh. And he talks about how he's one of his most favorite side characters, both the books and the show. He was excellently adapted. And a lot of what makes him work carries over into the show as far as a person. He, he died freezing in the middle of the night, which is not what you'd expect for a red priest but it was <laughs> as the hound said a, a, what he'd heard a good way to go and this also feeds in later to this making of game of thrones website where richard dormer has some mm. insights on his character oh. um of beric dondarian because richard dormer talks about 
Uh, he does talk about specifically losing Thoros and how that was a connection to his past life even before the Brotherhood, because Thoros was, just like Beric, attorney knight in King's Landing. I mean, obviously Beric is from House Dondarrion, whereas Thoros is just a, a red priest. But, you know, they, they were buddies. They were they were drinking buddies. They were fighting buddies. So it is, for Beric, obviously, a pretty emotionally resonant moment. Yeah, and it's also going a bit deeper into it as well, because, like, he says it touches Beric very deeply. But also that in the books, those lines about, are you my mother, Thoros? Like, Beric uh, doesn't yeah. remember yeah. even people further back in his past. Thoros is, like, the last thing... This juncture that he's holding on to, That's a great and point. he loses him in the middle of the night. As uh, Richard Dormer says, losing Thoros means it leaves him very empty inside. Yeah. It really does. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's move to Dragonstone, which was very exciting. We just had this quick little Dragonstone scene where Tyrion and Danny just continue to not get along, I guess. They're still clashing. Tyrion is still convinced that she is... I don't know, going nuts and trying to burn people all the time. And Danny is very rightly pointing out that uh, she's not, not that I'm biased or anything in this discussion. But what what, did, what was your guys' take on their, their fireside chat? An interesting conclusion to the discussion that Varys and Tyrion had, where it's like, you need to find a way to get through to her. And Tyrion finds personal ways of trying to tug at her heartstrings a little way. In, in small ways to get his message across, even though she doesn't doesn't end up listening in the end. She flies off north. But yeah. I thought that was a decent conclusion to that minor subplot of how Tyrion gets back in the ear of his queen. There, there's a good comment from a user, no one and not someone. Ooh, good name. Which is terribly confusing. They're comparing Tyrion in the show to Tyrion in the books, which I think is a, a really interesting question because they say explicitly, my thought is Tyrion's role in T-Wow and Ados will paint him in a not-too-flattering light, um, and that book Tyrion is going to be more conflicted and darker than show Tyrion, and we're left with sort of this bland St. Tyrion character, which I think is is correct. I mean, I I don't really see Tyrion in the books going down the St. Tyrion road. I, I almost would see him being more excited about burning people than Danny is. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and it's something that we already begin to see in A Dance with Dragons, where Tyrion as we keep repeating, is the one who is becoming more like Tywin Lannister and is willing to just kill, like, anyone in order to get his way, in order to achieve his goals. And, like, the the comments surrounding no one and not someone's comments. Mm -hmm. So he responds to the idea that Tyrion in the show actually has shown negative value to Danny since yeah. they set foot in rest Westeros. He's been giving advice that fails at each turn since Meereen. Yeah. And... Plus the like mistrust because of Tyrion's familial loyalty, and then as no one and not someone points out, like the prophecy we get from Makoro, who is not in the show, says that Tyrion is going to be playing this more chaotic role because he is the shadow that's snarling amidst the chaos, who's sowing chaos between Danny and the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, yeah. and Lucifer's pants, who responds <laughs> to no one and not someone. Says so that my theory is that Book Tyrion is going to work with Danny, but only to use her to finally gain Casterly Rock. He yes. will likely be completely hell bent on taking it and using any means necessary. And I do think that this is the case. Totally. And we've talked about this in our previous episode that touches on takeover of Casterly Rock goes. In the show, it's portrayed as empty because there's nothing there. But I think rather in the books that victory will be seen as hollow because Tyrion is going to be so brutal. Mm -hmm. And that's when we see Tyrion using anything that it takes as this much darker character who's just using Daenerys to get what he wants. Totally. And it rings hollow because he's that 
he is more villainous. Totally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially with what Lucifer's Pants said. Uh, thank you, Lucifer's Pants. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good name. Sorry. <laughs> and, then, and then for what moves the plot along in the, uh, the show here, they receive a letter. Yeah. Uh, a raven from Eastwatch saying that John and the rest of his party are trapped and Danny is the only one that can come save them. And Tyrion and Danny argue about it. Tyrion isn't entirely wrong here in the sense that, uh, well, first off, obviously it's a stupid mission sending them north of the wall to rescue a white. I think we can all it's agree dumb. that it's a dumb yes, mission. Yes, it is. And Danny should just yes. cut her losses so and dumb. just, okay, well, guess they're done for. I'll have to make do with Sansa as the queen in the north now. Great. The whole thing is kind of like strange how Tyrion is lobbying like, oh, you could get hit by an arrow, a random arrow flying up high at an apex that probably doesn't have much forward velocity left in it Very good versus point. walking into this gigantic trap in the middle of King's Landing where you're like standing in the previews. They're showing what looks to be the dragon pit. Yeah. Looks that like they're it. standing in this Colosseum area. And so it's like just one archer with a longbow poking out from a corner, a crossbow, bam, she's done. And this is not a huge risk to do, I guess. Maybe because he thinks, well, we have an army at the gate, so Cersei would get killed anyway because they could probably forcibly take the city if she gets killed. But it's still a huge risk if Cersei wants to roll the dice there. It's it's not a good mission, Tyrion. You're kind of not going with uh, the the smart plans yeah. at all. I, they should have I mean, just sent I, Daenerys in the first place. She should have just gone north yes. in the first place. And then we would have yeah. not had to deal with all the other parts uh, that came later in the right. episode. But anyway. They didn't, it's not like they knew the Night King had that kind of artillery to take down a dragon anyway. So they could have just assumed the safest way to get in and out was to fly over there, grab a white, and fly back out. Who knew he was so swole? Exactly. This scene has an important purpose of knocking down the Mad Queen theory that they've been playing with a little bit all season. Yeah. You know, they've been playing mm -hmm. with the idea that both Tyrion and Varys think that uh, Danny is becoming a little too much like her father. She's a little too willing to burn people. and But her fault in that scene is having too much heart, not too little heart. And that is the Danny we've known since season one. It's the Danny we've known since the first chapter she appears in the books. Mm. Um, and that's not yeah. uh, someone who burns people alive for fun. That's someone who risks her own life and those of the creatures she feels are her children for someone whom she just met but feels like she might love and also someone who uh, she's known for a long time and has complicated feelings about. You're totally right. That is early Danny. They do kind of talk about that this episode, though, where Danny admits to John she finally does believe him that there's an army of a dead. She may not have risked flying north with Drogon. That's true. But it like wouldn't have taken it would have taken her yeah, like I know, no apparently. time to just be like, oh I flew up here, then they, came down, I totally, whatever. I agree, Eliana. Yeah. I'm just saying they did drop in a line about it where they're like, well she didn't really believe John yeah, at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Also regarding Tyrion telling Daenerys don't go for north and she does anyway, I do just like the way that Chris reviews puts it. Where Daenerys is like, I'm already wearing House Targaryen's winter collection, Tyrion, my mind's made up. <laughs> That's my really bad British accent. I, I'm highborn. I straight up gasped when I saw that costume. Like, I wasn't even listening to their dialogue. I was like, holy heck, look at that. That's so cool. Yeah. I initially thought it was like, awesome, amazing. But then as we like zoomed in on it a bit more... I was thinking, like, did they really want to do white? But they have these lines in here on the costume of, like, the fur and stuff that are in the same type of pattern that you see on the White Walkers. 
Hmm. And I thought that was kind of a clash where everybody is like getting the same styling hmm. in the show. It's like, oh, now we're having her wear white instead of black like Cersei. Now she's wearing like the White Walker costume. I was kind of expecting the Night King to be like, love is in the air. <laughs> He's just seeing her and he's like, that's my lady. I'm going to make her my night queen. She looks just like me. That's canon. <laughs> she does kind of, she looks, in, in this lighting, she looks like she could be a night queen. But also. She looks like Elsa. I just want, yeah, she does look like Elsa, like with the hair <laughs> yes. and the makeup, yeah. the way it's done. Mm -hmm. But also, it kind of looks a little bit like the pommel of Longclaw, oh. which plays into what we were saying earlier, where the yeah, sword. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see it. I dig she it. did take his sword it's earlier. Nice. Oh, uh, well, she hasn't done that yet, Aaron. We're getting Not the ahead sword of she ourselves. Wants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and I mean, I like her tiger Actually, cape, though, on it. I think that added to sort of her Essos mm. look, you know. It doesn't seem that warm to me. But maybe like that's she's on well, the back of a dragon. Yeah. It's I guess. North Face, so it's actually pretty warm. <laughs> she's just she's got heating seats. <laughs> she's sitting on a being that is fire yeah. made flesh. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah, true. I think she's fine. True. She could be wearing a chainmail bikini and she'd be fine. I thought the um, the main point of the scene was uh, I actually think the costuming was important because she kind of looks uh, almost Starkish with the way and like kind of like ghost in a little bit with the way she's dressed at this moment, but also that Tyrion just gave her. The choice where he says, you can go take King's Landing right now, or you can go get John. And because they're playing up the love thing, she went to go get John. She thinks he's more important than the Iron Throne at this moment. Or she's being mm -hmm. warged by ghosts, and that's why she's oh dressed my God. that way. Yes. 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 Perfect. Yes. yes. Danny's ghost, canon. He's in we the show. It. So speaking of the place where Ghost is currently located, <laughs> uh -oh. I assume. We found Ghost. Let's talk about all of the Winterfell scenes all at once. Let's just talk about the Arya and Sansa and Littlefinger and Brienne dynamic this episode. No, do we have to? Uh, yeah, do we have to? It was in there, so... I guess we have to. All right, dive right in. I initially liked it how Arya was standing up there on the telling this old story about yeah. a time long past that we never saw. Sure. A callback to her first scene where she shoots that arrow and upstages Bran. Yes. And it's like a callback to the callback, but like the prequel to the callback. Yeah. And it was it was kind of nice in that regard and talking about Ned and It was. And then Arya has to go and say something <sighs> Yeah. Um frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> where do I mean like where do you even begin? Like the fact that they have these seven dudes getting along super well, even though it's been established that a couple of them sold another one into slavery and really messy relationships, and they get along super well and save each other's lives and their buddies. And Arya and Sansa, who are sisters who have missed each other, who seem to get along pretty well when they met up the first time this season. Yeah. And now Arya is sending death threats to Sansa. <laughs> Just, I don't know. It's such a clash. And then when both of them start talking about Ned's execution and their struggle against the Lannisters, there is such a bizarre disparity between the two of them here, where they won't even refute each other's points. Sansa was up there screaming and yelling, and I assume, like, Hootin and Trant or somebody yeah. was, like, holding her back. Mm -hmm. And then Sansa was like, where were you? You didn't try and stop him. It was like, actually, she did. She was on her way up to the stage, and Yorin grabbed her, and was like, what are you, what are you mm. thinking about, boy? You'll be a good boy. And yeah, and so she was trying to. 
You're making Yorin sound very creepy. <laughs> he was a little creepy in that we almost thought that he killed Arya. Yeah, that's That's true. a little creepy. That's true. You'll be coming with me, boy, and you'll be keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> and so, and you've got that flipped around. So, and then as people pointed out on the sub and Twitter and pretty much everywhere else, Arya later served drinks to Tywin. Yeah. So she was complicit in that. And Littlefinger also might have seen her there when he came up to bring the news of the Tyrell Alliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, t- the Tywin thing is the thing that, like, gets me the most. As mm-hmm. you said, it's been pointed out by many people, so I don't have a citation. Yeah, same. She did literally have a magic murder genie next to Tywin Lannister and <laughs> didn't pull the trigger. And, so. yeah. <sighs> she, I feel like she really can't talk like, yeah. Tywin was the linchpin yeah. in which it all... <laughs> I, I think my problem with just this entire Winterfell plot this episode is I think I said this in the last episode that I can't tell if everybody's being really dumb or if they're all playing 4d chess and they didn't resolve that at all they're they're keeping it going either they're playing little finger and this is some crazy sub game they're all going through <laughs> with bran in order to like get him to, to like implicate himself or they're all just being dumb yeah 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 right now it kind of looks like everyone's just being dumb uh yeah so, I mean, uh, as a preface, I agree with everyone else that nearly everything Arya does doesn't make sense. There was uh, a comment on the in-depth discussion post after this episode by uh, Hollow Waif, who points out the contrast between the way Arya thinks about how to deal with the incredible sexism of the society she lives in versus the way Cersei thinks about it. Mm. Uh, and I think both of them reflect their fathers. And Arya talks about her father, but, you know... Cersei, basically, she has experienced a lot of unfairness and trauma in her life in addition to enormous privilege. And what she takes away from that is basically that there is no right or wrong. There's only power. And those too weak, too weak to seek it, which is a Voldemort quote, not a Cersei quote. But I'm going to go with it. Um, <laughs> it works. Yeah, it works. Arya, on the other hand, has this guidance from her father, at least implicitly in this scene, in the, in the way she took it. That, you know, she has this story that she's telling Sansa in her awesome monologue. About how she was training and she wasn't supposed to be training because she's a girl uh, and learning how to shoot an arrow and working hard at it and doing it for a while. And eventually she makes the bullseye. Ned, who it turns out has been watching from the balcony the whole time, starts applauding her. Takeaway is there is a right and wrong, but sometimes the rules are wrong and it's still worth caring about what's right and being on that side of it. Uh, An interesting and important contrast with Cersei. And I want to thank Holloway for pointing it out. That is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Tying into Cersei because Cersei is probably the one of the other big examples of um someone who's who's sort of damaged by the way western society sets up rules for women and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do it's a little too bad that Arya didn't just go and have that chat with brienne instead of using it as ammo against sansa but (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i I feel like there's so much potential there for for good bonding between brienne and Arya. that they teased it several seasons ago at the end of season four and now it's like yeah this one scene in here there's a nice callback to it and then they like uh, well, let's uh, let's move on so we can get to that. <laughs> which next scene after this is when Sansa seeks the counsel of Littlefinger. Is that what happened here? Guess so. <sighs> it depends on your interpretation. Yeah. Either she's actually asking for help, or she's playing him, <laughs> and I don't know which, and I hate it. I will say that Sansa this season is just great, right? Like no matter what you might think of the writing of these scenes, which I think we can all agree on. Mm, um, I think Sansa. That's true this season has been just like level-headed and more way more calm cool and collected than could be expected of her i would say like like she's just 
And she was making great points this episode about like, yeah, these lords have switched allegiances three or four times in the last two years. <laughs> uh, you know, can we trust them at all? At any, this, she's saying the right thing. She's doing the right things. Yeah. It's a very Stannis Baratheon point to it me. It is. Yeah, it is very Stannis-y. He's like, these lords serve my brother, then they serve my other brother, and now they serve me. Yeah. Like, That's a great point. I guess in the show, they had to have Sansa say that, not Stannis. Uh, yeah. More Stannis shaming. <laughs> Sansa Baratheon. People do ship that. Baratheon Stark. Really? Sansa is possibly the most sophisticated operator who has any meaningful position on the board right now. And I'm including Littlefinger because he hasn't done anything useful in a long time, and it's unclear what the point of his character is at this point. He's really holding down the fort. But is she also holding down the dread fort? Questions that are unanswered. Who does have the dread fort? So there's a there's a user who has some maybe off the wall tinfoil. User 05-12. In the in-depth post-episode discussion said, something I noticed, every time there's a scene with Littlefinger, there's ravens making noises in the background. Wow. Weird. So is this is uh, this just ambient Winterfell yeah. soundtrack or is it Bran surveillance network? No, I this is Bran. I think this entire <laughs> plot is Bran just playing with Littlefinger. I think Arya and Sansa's complicity is questionable based on the, the clues they put in. But I think it's they've had ravens follow him around. They've had Bran start the plot that put him on this collision course. Uh, Bran's controlling this situation. It's just he's just waiting for it to explode, I guess. And for some reason, <sighs> well, if he'd been watching Arya before, like he knows what she's like, so. It's kind of silly if an entire army of dead people and their ancient leaders are approaching the wall and they're facing the point of no return to come. But Bran decides, hey, I'm going to stalk this one dude who has a nefarious <laughs> plot consisting of hiding a letter in a bedsheet. Well, to be fair, the Night's King knocked away Bran's attempt at surveillance. He kind of kicked him out. So he may just be focusing on what's nearby. He ran out of ravens. Well, he has yeah, turtle, turtles yeah. left. He has an army of turtles that are currently crawling up to the wall. I, I'm not saying I like that Bran's doing this. I'm saying I think that's what's happening. As Garmeth 6 says in response to 05-12, if this is true, then you're an absolute legend. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow. a pretty high compliment. Yeah, we're going to give comment. him a flare that says he's an absolute Tin legend. Tinfoil. Oh. What if the ice spiders are actually brands, and because he's running out of ammo to use against the Night King, he has to send up just the spiders what? crawling in his wall up what? to go. Uh, Is this like the Night King? Harry Potter living under the, the stairs and he has oh, the spiders? Oh, oh, oh yeah. Like so yeah, Littlefinger playing Sansa a little bit, right? He's like, oh, do you really think Arya is that kind of person? I don't know. I I couldn't give two hoots and a holler. I I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> He suggests pitting Brienne, <laughs> and uh, for the record, Eliana just went and lay down somewhere. We don't. She's off. Yeah, she's done with this. She turned gone. her back on the podcast um, and laid so, down. But what's interesting? What I thought was interesting, anyway. <laughs> and the only thing here that suggested a deeper plot to me was Littlefinger starts suggesting that Sansa use Brienne against Arya. Right? Maybe she, get, she should get suspicious of of Brienne or whatever. And then Sansa sends Brienne away. Yeah. What's going on there? Is it Sansa getting fooled by Littlefinger into being suspicious of Brienne? Or is it Sansa sending Brienne away to get her out of the situation? What? It looked to me like the latter. It looked like Sansa was trying to protect 
bring I agree. somehow. I agree. Which is kind of a Ned Stark It's move. a John sending Sam and the baby away from the wall kind of move. Uh, you know what I mean? It's a Stark-like <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Goodbye again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just... Uh, it's, it's either 40 Chester or it's stupid. <laughs> uh, again... I thought the most interesting part of this little interaction is that they're giving Brienne a plot again. Yes. She's not just standing around training Podrick. She's on a collision course back with Jamie yes. and Cersei again, which means the Valonqar and the younger, more beautiful queen might Hell be on track yeah. for this season Hell or the next yeah. one. Getting Bramie back up in here. So our final Winterfell scene this episode is Sansa snooping around in Arya's room. Oh, God. Um, and she oh finds God. a bag of rubber masks, which is very strange <laughs> because I guess that's also what Gendry made his hammer out of. Um a lot of rubber this season. <laughs> okay, what is with people in Winterfell, like, just, like, not... Everyone just, like, doesn't have an idea of privacy? Like, do the Starks just, like, not learn that? Like, both Arya and Sansa are like, oh, yes, let's snoop in people's rooms, but... <laughs> Maybe there's a master key, I guess, that she, uh, Sansa can yeah. get in there, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it goes back to, like, the sen- the sense of, like, honor and privacy and, like, th- that sort of thing should... You know, exist. Uh, oh my god. I, I have questions about this scene. Okay. I, I have I have questions. Did they shoot this scene with both actresses present? Because when I went to go rewatch it again today, uh-huh. you look at it, and the only time that Sophie Turner is in the same frame with Arya, or the appearance of Sophie Turner, it could be an extra because her head is turned. But you have all these other close-up shots of each one that it feels like they weren't shot together. And that they tried to splice them together later, and that caused like this scene to somewhat fall apart. I'm not sure if that's a director's decision with they were both there and they were trying to go for this disconnect, yeah, or if they were just one of them was overbooked for the day and they couldn't be there. Mm. But it it really feels like if you just go back and watch Maisie's scenes by herself, it feels like she's not actually acting to anybody else in the room. And I'm not sure if that's the way that she's playing the character mm-hmm. in this moment, or that that was how it was shot. I, could, I I don't know. It may have been even by two different directors if, like, they didn't have that other director for the scene. They could have even rewritten it if Sansa's scenes were shot first, and then they go back and they retool dial- Arya's dialogue. Mm-hmm. So... I, I could see that. I wouldn't have thought of that watching it, but I could I could see that now. I, I will say that, I mean, we've been praising Maisie Williams' acting this season, but this was probably her worst scene in terms of the acting. I just, I didn't buy it at all. It didn't feel like she was acting against anybody. Like, right. she wasn't listening to what Sansa was saying at all. And I'm not sure if that's how it's in the script. And she wasn't also acting against anybody <laughs> that was there. Right, yeah. I'm wondering if, um, if like us, Maisie was confused about what the scene was <laughs> yeah. supposed to be doing. And she just kind of yeah. lost what she was doing. I mean, yeah, and if the director also doesn't quite yeah. know how to tell them how to sell it. Yeah. The most generous reading of the scene to me is that Arya, when she's over in Braavos, at the very last end of her arc, she appears before the kindly man and says, I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell, and I'm going home. And then she goes home, and she realizes that she doesn't really fit in here either, and her home doesn't exist. Everything is gone, and that she's really now thinking like, well, I'm no one of Braavos, but I wasn't really that either, and that she's just kind of lost and has nowhere to turn in her life. In other words, that's not you. (laughs) (laughs) It's that she's going through an identity crisis to some degree, and she doesn't know exactly what's... And that's, I think, the most generous take on it. 
I don't think that's really portrayed in any of the scenes that they've had. It, it could be something if they would have had a scene in there with Brienne and Arya, it would have worked and she might have like confided more in Brienne because she mm. feels closer to her in some ways as to how like she's knightly. Um, yeah. But I think this, keep, oh, we man. keep coming back to this thing that I keep saying like every Quill and Tankard so far. So I'm just going to keep beating the dead horse, but I feel like it could have used one more episode this season. Just one more, just to, like, Two give more. us those scenes Three. of Arya and Brienne talking, and maybe a little bit more yeah. with the Magnificent Seven that's not so packed into one episode. Just a little bit more breathing room. Because I think that's what we keep coming back to in our complaints, right? Is is that we're like, ah, I wish I could have seen this, or I wish I could have seen the thought process behind this. Um, it feels like when you need a little finger plot, you need to have it be on at least 3D chess level or 2D chess level to some degree. But because everything's going so fast, you can't get to that point. And so when you start smashing these scenes together, uh, it just doesn't work. Going back to what Aaron was saying about this identity crisis thing, especially because it comes right after the scene where Sansa sees all of Arya's faces. And Arya, for some reason, well, I guess she didn't want to hide it. She's just like, those are my faces instead of like yeah those are my masks i just have really good quality masks <laughs> but anyways in the books <laughs> um in feast we establish when you put on someone's face you also get all of their memories yes yeah, so. or not all of their memories but you get some of their memories and that does cause a bit of a minor identity crisis every single time and it could have been played as Arya's going through an identity crisis course between being the faceless man of Braavos as well as Arya Stark of Winterfell partially because of all the trauma that she's been through and having just abused this power taking all these faces without necessarily going through all the training of maybe like what it takes to maintain her sanity mm -hmm. and that's why she's being like super yeah. weird yeah right but um that's not what we got it's also yeah. that Arya is putting the faces on of people that she's killed. Like, w you get this big cleansing ritual in the House of Black and White where they c mm -hmm. curate all these faces. But Arya is putting, like, on Walder Frey's face after Walder <laughs> Frey has already experienced her murdering him. That would even be more jarring than possibly anything. You're not supposed to kill people that you know, possibly because it's very dangerous to the faceless men if you try and wear mm -hmm. that face. But yeah, you could also do stuff here with, like, when Arya shows back up, like Benioff side in the inside of the episode, the Odysseus sort of move, yeah. kills a couple guards, kills one of the guards down with Ed Sheeran. You could do a whole bunch of different things with this if you want to show that Arya is a lost soul. Like, it's that she's played up as being just coming home and there's nothing wrong with her. And then all of a sudden, there's something massively wrong with her. Mm -hmm. It's also just, like, so ridiculous and contrived that she believes what's in this letter when Kat and Rob saw through it immediately. Right. And Arya is supposed to have been trained in deception. Yeah. It, it, in all the things. It's like, I don't That's know. That's the big irony, right? Is that she's talking about the lying game and all that, but like, she can't figure out yeah. that a letter written under duress might not be like the most reliable source for information. I don't know. It, it's a, look, it's a dumb plot. <laughs> um. <laughs> well. To, to go back to um, sort of the meta commentary, are they being smart? Are they being dumb? In this scene, it implies they're being dumb because they're arguing in private. So if they're actually in cahoots, yeah. there's no That's point in true. arguing in private. But the previous yeah. one with Brienne implies that Sansa is in cahoots with her because they sent away Brienne in order to like low, low finger into like a sense of like uh, security mm, yeah. or something like that. But 
it, it feels like even within this episode, they don't know which one they're telling, and we're just going to find out next episode which one it is. Or maybe that has nothing to do with this plot, and it's just that they need to send somebody down as a representative to King's Landing, and Brienne is the logical choice for Sansa in this situation. Yeah. Like, I, I'm going to go ahead and cite a user in um, the in-depth discussion thread, which has generated a lot of good in-depth discussion. Everyone should check it out every week um, oh. on the subreddit. What's this user's name? Because I feel like it's a kindred spirit. This user's name is Tormented Thoughts 2. A two as in also. Yeah, T-double-O. Um, and they sum up their thoughts by saying that the bi- their biggest gripe with the Winterfell plot is that it's really something that could have been wrapped up in one episode. And I think that's right. This really does feel like they're just sort of stretching out this sibling tension just to have something happen in the finale. I kind of wish they had gone for a Joffrey style thing and just had this all wrapped up, suddenly wrapped up earlier in the season or had a different plot that's less about Mm. resolving Arya and Sansa's differences and more about some other, like them facing some other threat or something. I also think it's kind of the problem of having Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner on your show. You have to give them screen time. That's a good point. They're such big stars. You have to. Sophie Turner is legitimately becoming like a superstar. If you're paying her, you got to use her, even if it's a bad plot. Same reason Jamie had to kill his cousin in season two. It's because they couldn't have Nikolai Coster-Waldo sit off in a jail cell for the entire season. Um yeah. In the comment that you uh, cited, you know, they're saying, like, if Arya is offering Sansa the sword, as in, like, I'm your sword, um, it needs to be blunt if that's the intention, or if they're trying to make it a mystery, like, that they're trying to make it a mystery when it needs to be more straightforward. Mm. And also, if Arya is so, like, I'm gung-ho action, why is she sticking around in Winterfell, you know? Why? She doesn't need to be tied down there. Like, is she just... I mean, maybe she's just waiting for John yeah. to come back, but if she knows where John is, Arya has all the means to make her way to Dragonstone should yeah. she have really and wanted And she would to. have been a much more valuable player beyond the wall than, say, Gendry. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, she has, she could, I don't disagree. She's even younger, so maybe she's much faster than yeah. Gendry. Yeah. She's quit like a cat. Cat of the canals. Could she steal a white's face and just go down to King's Landing oh. and tease Cersei? <laughs> <laughs> maybe like does that work sandor has part of a white's face now so uh yeah, maybe apparently. oh i guess he rubbed it on the ground all right speaking of the magnificent seven are you guys ready to leave winterfell um yeah. i am yes. so yeah, ready please. to get yes. out of here uh, so many yeah. people are let's return to the beyond the wall part of the episode i guess it kind of kicks off right with sandor flinging his rock at the whites there's a post by user rusty the smith on things that episode six did right and they talk about the hound throwing rocks at the dead was hilarious. Sure. The way these mysterious monsters, and we felt lucky to get a glimpse of them, now they aren't so mystical. And you can see that with the way that the hound is okay mocking them. Like a skeleton's jaw breaks off and he looks back with the same dumb stares before. The hound calls him a word we can't say here if we want to get on iTunes, and throws another rock. And... What I like about the scene, the logic behind like how suddenly the ice is still thick enough, etc., for everyone to th- to go on is a little flimsy. But I like this fault, and their failure comes from something that's inherent in who the Hound is. The Hound is someone who is impatient. He is impulsive in many ways, and it's that sort of impatience that causes him to do something so childish and immature that it imperils everyone else on that island 
that was one of the best moments actually of the show like yeah. i could totally believe that that was what the hound was doing and to see like i don't even know what a good name for the for the guy with the the jaw that got knocked off jaws the was. fifth of spain <laughs> <laughs> the greatest of the habsburgs obviously oh wait yeah that's right we were talking last episode or the episode before about how charles the fifth and his jaw was not is this D's commentary on medieval history technically uh, it's early modern oh no. no. yeah he flings him at jaw flings it at jaws the fifth you would have thought they would have noticed the ice but i i guess uh who knows? Maybe the White Walkers don't know much about ice. Um, All right. So anyway, blah blah blah, and then so the fight ensues, yeah. and then there's this fantastic thing that user Alopolis, Alopolis. pointed out. You can see in the background of the Magnificent Seven fighting. There's one wildling, and he's just flailing his spear around at nothing. What is he fighting? I don't know. He is Star Wars kidding it up in the back there. He is. (laughs) (laughs) If someone could just take like a short clip of him spazzing out with his spear and put the Star Wars music. That is a man acting against a green screen and a tennis ball if I've ever seen it. That is Michael Sarah in Arrested Development flailing around um, with a broom. This is not a flaw. Game of Thrones cannot make mistakes. This is clear proof that the Whites do indeed have the ability to turn invisible. So the foreshadowing for this is as clear as daylight. Regardless, setting aside any writing things, the sheer spectacle of all the Whites and stuff and all that. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it was fantastic. It awesome. Like, it was it was really cool looking from start to finish. It maybe not, didn't have the emotional resonance for everybody, but it sure did look cool. It looks so much better than the Jojen ending scene in the, at the end of season oh, yeah. four when they fought those green screen white. It's like, man, those one skeletons were bad. That Pirates of the Caribbean scene, this one, they look real believable. The and Ray Harryhausen skeletons. <laughs> yeah. They fought Red Skeleton. <laughs> I don't, I don't think they fought Red Skeleton. <laughs> the reference is a bit dated. A World War II era comedian. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the the fight scene was cool you had you know jorah obviously mm-hmm. multi-classed as a rogue so he could do the dual wielding yeah. with daggers he had a lot mm-hmm. of good stuff going on but i just wasn't that like after the first couple minutes of it i was like all right uh this is cool this is good it's good stuff like i said it was awesome action but i think the fact that they were just sort of mowing him down and no one was dying like i I kept waiting for someone to die, for someone to get, like, an arm chopped off or something. I couldn't believe Tormund escaped with just a scratch. Like, yeah. that that other um, wildling number seven that dropped down into that pit got, like, literally ripped to shreds, and there's, like, blood and flesh going everywhere. And they're just kind of, like, lightly pawing <laughs> at Tormund. Like, we're dragging you into the water. We're gonna, get you. We're gonna drag you we're into gonna the water. <laughs> I'm gonna touch you. <laughs> it's like, why are you trying to drown Tormund? <laughs> just kill him. I kept, like, rewinding 30 seconds to see if the person who just died or almost died was a real character who matters, and it keeps, the answer keeps being no, it's not. It's just, like, a bunch of random non-characters. Yeah. They even faked it out once with, I think it was the bear fight, where, like, it looks like he's about to hit Barrack, but it turns out he just hit an extra or something. There was something about the way it was shot that, like, just confused me. I was like, oh, oh, that was just some rando. I, I will say, I kind of wish that, always wanted, ever since they had Barrack and Thoros and Sandor all meet up. I've always wanted Beric to give his last life up to bring Sandor back from the dead in the show. Because I just think that would be awesome, right? It would be so cool to have Sandor reanimated by fire. Like, there's you know, there's so much to explore there. 
Um, so yeah. that's where I kind of thought they were going to go this episode is Thoros dies, then Sandor dies, and Beric decides that his purpose was to bring Sandor. I mean, that, that would have been a game changer, I think. Um, and that would also feed into what Richard Dormus later said about where he thought his character he wanted to go would be that he would fight the mountain because even after all these years, he's still carrying oh. Ned Stark's command to find and bring the mountain oh, to justice. Yeah. That is true. That so would nice. that would be a way to fulfill his promise if then Sandor fought oh, Gregor Clegane. I hope that I, ho- I still hope it happens at some point, yeah. but it should have happened this episode. So the action's amazing. Yes. Many whites are killed. Nobody really dies except for anonymous spearmen. And then at the last moment, when it looks like everybody's going to be overwhelmed, like you're playing Left <laughs> for Dead too. Yeah, Danny swoops in. The Lord of Light sent some fire after all, and she kills a whole lot of them real fast and it's that was uh, pretty cool to see. why did she not just go for the white walkers straight for them nobody knows and it's hard to see from up that high although that's yeah. true also she, she's not super familiar with them all she's seen is a sweet cave drawing so danny lands obviously to, to airlift them out of there uh mash style john reaches up he's about to leap on the dragon's back and suddenly turns around and sees a random white about 50 feet away and he just can't abide that <laughs> And has to leap down and go fight the white. Um, John, John's an idiot, right? I mean, could we... <laughs> yeah. I mean, we yeah. were saying this thing about yeah. the Death Wish, which is true. He loves leaping into battle, but like, come on. The, after the episode, they and I think in a director's interview, they said that John was trying to give him more time, the old trope, and like, you guys go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to take care of this, even though they're like literally yeah. about to take off. Yeah. Uh, I, my own headcanon for this was way better. <laughs> That John just wanted to go kill the Night's King. That he saw him, he was there, Beric had talked about oh, it yeah. earlier, like, what if you just go kill him? And John's like, what if I go do that? I can end this right now. Yeah. He's like, the dragons are here, we're probably safe. This is my shot. I'm gonna take it. Mom spaghetti. <laughs> uh, this user interpreted it that way. It's by user Abdullah Siddiqui. Says Jamie's actions from the caravan attack, where he charges at Danny, hoping to kill her and end the war, mirror very closely to what John does when Danny and the dragons arrive to shuttle him and his people to safety. He instead chooses to push through the Horde of Whites to try and get at the Night King to end the war and defeat the Army of the Dead, as Beric indicated to him mm-hmm. earlier, rather than to simply get on Drogon and leave, which would have been arguably the most sensible option, or the more sensible yeah, option. Right. They say it's interesting because this parallel in their actions brings back the conversation between the two, in season one, episode two, where Jamie is ridiculing John for his inexperience in battle mm. regarding oh, the sword, yeah. and shows how though John may still be inferior to the Kingslayer in battle strategy and other things regarding open warfare, at their core they are very similar commanders who made similar decisions to almost inevitably give up their lives for the greater good of their people. Damn. Or yeah. like just for that like final. Yeah. Too bad it was a terrible idea. But I mean, yeah. You know what? I I actually. I could buy that as a uh, as an actual explanation for why he he turns around um, as opposed to just him hitting whites. I mean, he was the first one in line to get on the dragon, and then he jumps out of line to I, I don't know. It's very yeah. And then we go to the big moment of the episode: Viserion mm. going down, hit with a spear thrown by a god. Oh, apparently, yeah. It Number was... one in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. Olympic team tweeted out that they want to know That's where right. to contact him. <laughs> It's really impressive. So there's a lot of problems with this part about the Night King <laughs> killing Viserion. <laughs> what? There were? I actually like this. 
right? How does he know the dragons exist? How does he know that he needs ice javelins to be ready? How does he know that he needs to practice to become the best ice javelin thrower in the world? Practice, 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 practice. I think some users pointed out that they ha- they already had these javelins, that they did not make them for this encounter, that these are pre-existing weapons. Also, what else is the Ice King gonna do, you know? Like, he's just been waiting there for hundreds of years. He's probably just been practicing javelining this whole time. That's why he's so good at it. This is his thing. Yeah. He's got that arm, is- man. Everyone's got talents, and this yeah, is his, you know? Do you know? think that this is how the White Walkers go off to college and they play, like, Ice Spear Beer Pong yes. as, like, their big game? Yes. The other one, the one that they killed earlier in the episode, he was all about the ice flip cup, so. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't as useful. Wait, so there's, um, on the discussion thread, the, the in-depth discussion thread after the episode, a user thrall underscore so underscore hard, thrall so hard, um, had uh, an interesting comment. Uh, which I think speaks for a lot of us, certainly speaks for me. Um, why did the Knights King not just go for Drogon? He was on the ground right in front of him with all his enemies to his back. Yes. Killing Drogon would have meant almost certain victory. Why did he feel the need to go Steph Curry and Viserion? Uh, I think this is an interesting question, right? Drogon was closer. He's bigger. He's more important because everyone's on his back. Viserion is further and smaller and less of a threat. But two things. Number one, javelining Viserion shows off the Night's King's amazing javelin skills like more clearly. Exactly. And number two, yeah. uh, show off uh, that the Night's King is a classically trained supervillain who takes his responsibility to the plot seriously and he can't kill Drogon now. There's a whole other season to go. So like that's what I think is going on in that scene. I don't think there's a better explanation for it than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly, yeah. I think the explanation the show wants us to have is that um, when he hit Viserion, Viserion was about to breathe a crap ton of fire, and that's actually what caused him to die, is that it got punctured with the ice javelin, and Drogon was just kind mm-hmm. of sitting there. So maybe it would have clattered off Drogon, but because Viserion was about to breathe fire, that's maybe. why he chose him. That's really intricate. <laughs> he knows a lot about dragon entomology, I guess. Lizardmology? I, I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, the other thing is that he clearly had, we're all just like basically spitballing ideas to justify this weird plot decision, just to clarify. But while we're doing that, he did clearly have some other ice spears prepared. Maybe he just figured like he'd take his time, you know, pick them off one by one. They weren't going anywhere because he clearly had another one lined up for Drogon that almost took Drogon out uh, towards later in the episode. So maybe he was just. Maybe that was his equivalent of laughing you know, at the humans. A little cocky. Um, oh, was like, yeah, I'll just, I'm going to pick you guys off one by one and make you watch, like that kind of thing, which maybe could have used a facial expression or two. Um, yeah. That's all I ask, just a facial expression. And it's, it's Viserion <laughs> that had to go down because that is Danny's least favorite dragon because his name's yeah. after Viserys. You really couldn't tell, though, in the episode who it was, though, because it was... I know. Which does speak to, I don't I do think the whole thing's going to go down a little differently in the books. I do think that in the books, the White Walkers get a dragon. Mm. But we can speculate based on, I think it was an Arian 2 chapter, mm. where, I don't remember the name mm. of the girl, it's like Teora or something, has a dream and she says, and uh, foretelling a second dance of the mm. dragons, Daenerys is probably going to lose one of her dragons, not necessarily to death first but that perhaps one of them might choose Fagon, mm. um, as there is another claimant to the throne in the books. Aegon Targaryen supposedly is still alive. Right. Well, either way, Viserion bites it, goes into yeah. the lake, and so does Jon. Uh, so Jon uh, survives. Yep. 
the the freezing cold water, which you're supposed to die in that really quickly really? if you fall yeah. into if you're falling to an ice hole up while you're ice fishing, you get out of that as quick as possible. You will freeze minutes really quickly. Yeah. It's worse than like Titanic. So John mm-hmm. is underneath the ice for an unknown period of time. Gets out, survives, walks away. It was about ready to go fight the the knight's army, the army of death, and he's going to die again. But suddenly, out of nowhere, Cold Hand shows up. Uncle Benjamin? Uncle no, 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 we mean Euron. We mean Dario. <laughs> Euron? Oh, <laughs> hey, here's an idea, real quick. What if Viserion, falling into the water, heated the water up to the point where it was no longer dangerous oh, yeah. for John to be in? I saw something like that. Wow. Yeah. What I mean, this is this is dumb, but uh, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> yeah, the water's tepid. I was gonna say it's because John's a fire white, so he has like fire within him. Yeah, that's. I see her on the planning doc. We have an important yeah. rant scheduled. Okay, so Go. I've raised I've raised the bar a little high by writing important rant in the outline, but I want to address this for a second because I think this is an important thing. There are so many fake deaths, and this is not just in the show. To, to be fair to them, this is in the books too. But there are so many fake deaths, and especially this late in the series, with characters that we know are not going to die in stupid ways for stupid scenes that have no purpose in happening. It just doesn't yeah. make sense that they're going to try to build yeah. suspense in a way that, like, I don't believe you. I don't believe Jon Snow is going to die in this relatively pointless battle. And in hindsight, I think, like, the only reason they had that yet another fake death that looked just like the fake death in the Battle of the Bastards that I also didn't believe and thought was kind of boring and they should have had more time for dialogue, like... It just existed to tie off the Benjen plotline, which, like, in the after the episode, Benioff even admitted they basically never had any idea what to do with Benjen. It was just super unsatisfying, and I find it frustrating in the moment because, like, I know you're not going to kill him, so just don't. Right. Just, just yeah, don't do that. Absolutely. It's a good rant. Nobody believed yeah. it. Rant over. Yeah. It's the same problem that I have, like, watching Doctor Who right now is because the, all these episodes, they always do fake out deaths towards the end. I'm like, just don't do it because when then they actually get to the point where they're going to do some kind of death you're so desensitized to it at that point that it's like it doesn't even carry any emotional weight because if they do eventually kill john off are we going to believe that are we going to be like oh he's going to come back and it's like oh then he doesn't and it loses its emotional impact true so yeah i mean yeah and like this is something that a friend of mine who only watches the show has never read the books even saw some frustration with because he was saying that this has been going on throughout the series like oh is jamie gonna die from this dragon or i guess being like thrown into the water lol nope oh is john snow and company gonna die from this horde of undead lol nope oh is john snow gonna die from the second horde of undead lol nope it's Benjamin? How can and then my friend asks, how can he possibly know John is on a super important mission? So important that John's life is worth more than his own. So like Brand. True, but it's just I don't mind the fake outs necessarily, but this user dinosaurs didn't exist. Dinos wrong. wrong dinosaurs currently still exist. <laughs> Technically birds are classified as dinosaurs now. Good science lesson. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so there, the post says the problem of the saviors is not that characters survive, but that they are in an unbelievable situation in the first place. This, the TLDR is that putting characters in situations they cannot reasonably survive and having them survive anyway reminds everyone that this is a TV show and what happens on screen doesn't actually matter because none of it is real and the writers are able to force whatever outcome they wish ruins that suspension of disbelief and some of the moments that they point out are about like Arya getting stabbed four times and it doesn't matter she can't die 
So they find a way out of it. John's army, surrounded by Boltons, as you were pointing out. Doesn't matter, they can't lose. Or Jamie falls underwater. Doesn't matter. John gets dragged under the ice into freezing water in sub-zero temperature by two zombies in full furs in the middle of nowhere, completely surrounded by the army of the dead, and no one around to save him. Doesn't matter, he can't die, so the writers will find a way out of it. And they say these situations and the resolutions be like if the Red Wedding had taken place, but Rob, Talisa, and Catelyn had miraculously escaped because his loyal knight bursts into the hall at the last moment and puts them on a horse to yeah, ride out into the I night. I agree. It's like the same problem I have with the Avengers movies where it's like, you know Iron Man's not dying. You know Captain America isn't dying. It's going to be somebody else. You lose all the drama of the battles they're in because it's like, nothing's happening. We're just going to wait to see how they miraculously solve it. And that's the drama instead of their mortality being on the line. It is like that. And especially because you're coming up on the last six episodes of the series, or well, I guess seven episodes when you get done with this one, you can afford to kill off people now. Like if you want to just kill off a whole bunch of people in a situation like that where they have no escape, you can do that and still ride around it because you have so many characters to pick from. So it's why it makes it feel to me like they're saving people so that they stick around for the next season to draw in ratings. It sounds terrible, but I just can't come up with another explanation of why they're all living. Like Tormund didn't have to survive. And I guess for them, they think that the death of the dragon was large enough Mm. that it cancels out all the survival. It was pretty big. I mean, yes in that it ups the stakes but it also it doesn't have the emotional connection that makes the audience feel like there was a loss it's big plot wise but it's not necessarily big character wise it's not like Viserion was a beloved fan yeah. favorite character Viserion's just a dragon like they couldn't even show clips of Danny and Viserion together in the yeah. inside the episode and they're talking about how close she is to her dragons all they showed was clips of her and Drogon because there's no footage of her and Viserion yeah. bonding yeah and she's even like fine at the end, she's like, yeah, it's okay, John. And, like, if Danny, if there had been a consequence of your stupid mission, which was a bad idea, caused me to lose one of my dragons, there would be, wait. Yeah, bittersweet. Yeah, bittersweet. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Even it? among the dragons, Viserion's, like, the Thoros <laughs> of the three of them. Viserion's the expendable yeah, one. It's true. I was going to say, the dragon is exciting, I think, for the audience. And maybe that's just our perception. But, like, the dragon's exciting because it's like, oh, yeah, the stakes are, like, this This is going to be awesome. So, speaking of yeah. getting out of there scot-free, I don't know if we're ready to talk about the ship. Everybody's favorite ship, yep. which is sailing <laughs> currently. John Aris. Yeah. Um, it's an okay ship. It's an okay ship. I, I liked the character moment here where John bends the knee because this did feel like a satisfying conclusion to that arc of will John and Danny be able to cooperate because Danny meets him halfway and is like, yeah, I'll help you fight this war. Yeah. And John meets her halfway and is like, I've seen the way that you'll put your life on the line. I respect that. I'll bend the knee. And that was a good resolution for the characters. I think this was probably one of the best scenes yeah, in the episode. It was believable. I, I thought this was an, a, a good scene. I thought it was enjoyable to watch. I thought it was well acted, which you don't always hear from those two actors, although I think they kind <laughs> of people get them credit for. I think there was a problem here, which is that Danny is meeting John halfway by agreeing to defend what she asserts to be her kingdom from a threat that threatens certainly all seven of the kingdoms. John is meeting her all of the way by bending the knee forever and giving her dominion over the north and her heirs. The problem with that is he got basically nothing in return. She saw the White Walkers. She was going to fight them. She's going to go back and deal with it. 
he didn't need to bend the knee at that point. And, and granted, I think it makes sense for him to do so eventually, but it should have been an exchange. It should have been, I will bend mm. the knee if you unite our houses together. Yeah. And I'm not just saying this because I'm the Coast Guard, the guardian of the ships. I'm saying it because I think it makes sense from John's perspective that, like, yeah. he should demand something in return from her. Or not even demand, like, they say, like, here's a way we can move forward together, right? And she has just made this thing about how the dragons are the only children she'll ever have, which, by the way, she shouldn't tell people that because it, like, questions why are you founding a dynasty you can't continue. But regardless, <laughs> there is something that they can give each other to unite their two houses that is the tradition throughout Westerosi history of how you create alliances like this. Mm-hmm. She's a queen, he's a king, they're both single and the same age. Why doesn't that occur to either of them? To move in together. Yes. <laughs> to shack up. <laughs> to get a civil union. Brian, I think you're missing that they held hands. That's for space, right? Sure, they held That's it. basically marriage. They they want to save until the next season. That's the only reason. There's no other reason. Yeah, no, it, it's true. You're right. He doesn't. He's it's not getting base. anything back. Is is that is that right? Any girl you hold hands with, you've married because I, I think to, that's true. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, it's like so a Futurama where I'll you just touch them and then you know they get pregnant. <laughs> so Danny's going to have think, children. Yeah, I think Danny did meet him all the way because. Um, she was like, I like you too, John. Yeah, I mean, we know what she, he's getting in return, am I right, She's like, fellows? I like, like you. I, I, like, I really like you. I'm gonna like all your Instagram posts. But, like, even in that interpretation, her her thing is implied, his thing is explicit. That's not the same. E- even if you think That's that true. it's being that way into it. Oh, it's gonna be explicit. <laughs> <laughs> Be very okay. Yeah, next time. Let's move on. Yeah. That, that. Yeah, they've held hands. Next time he's going to put his arm around her shoulder. Uh, d- dare he? They're going to watch a movie together. Do you think he's going to treat her to a burger and a malted milkshake? <laughs> We're going to go to the square dance later, Danny. As these two dragons come closer together, some the the white walkers are dragging something up from the lake. That's not the pun you thought I was going for, was it? <laughs> My friend Tom would call them the White Corps of Engineers. Perfect. <laughs> I like that. Do you think they have a special group of whites who, like, you know, are really buff? <laughs> Picture of random white. Yep. This guy's trying to put himself through MIT. <laughs> they, they do drag up the dragon, and yeah, uh, the Night King animates it, I guess, right? It, it's just a. He's got a blue eyes white dragon, which is the joke everyone's been making. For World of Warcraft fans, this is Sindragosa. They ripped us off. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah this is this is basically how they're gonna probably get through the wall they have a dragon now this is the big game changer they're sitting right there this has got to be it the idea that they're gonna get through the wall with this dragon user sir appleby presumably of house appleby i don't know house applebees in the in <laughs> house applebees in the in-depth discussion thread um said you know so if if undead Vizarian's going to destroy the wall and let them through then could the humans have just ignored the White Walkers and nothing yep. would have happened? Yeah, probably. Wow. So <laughs> I assume that the chains are supposed to be used to take it down. Like that they were preparing some sort of siege weapon. Yeah, maybe. It's kind of cheapens it if they do end up knocking down the wall by using a dragon when the Night King wasn't really playing some kind of plot to like lure one north to get through it. Like it, it they should have played that up more. Like he was teasing Bran and getting Danny to bring a dragon up, but none of that was was in there. They could have been, if I'm going to headcanon this again, (laughs) so often, they could have been wandering around the north looking for a uh, a dragon skeleton, and they just didn't find one, and finally Viserion drops into their lap, like, oh, finally, we got one! And now they can do it. That would have been kind of cooler if they were digging up a frozen dragon up in the north. 
from like the dance or something like Cannibal, and they yeah. like, were reanimating it. Mm. I thought that's what they were showing. They showed that overhead shot of like that canyon where we eventually saw the um, oh. the the whites going down. I thought we were going into a dig site because oh, I figured yeah. that they were ripping oh. off WoW so much right here with the Lich King. That's actually <laughs> a thing that happens. <laughs> they end up they dig up dragon uh, skeletons and reanimate them in the game, oh. and that's more or less what happened here. With uh, that's it's almost exactly what Arthas does with Sindragosa between the Knights King and Viserion. Anyways. I'm a nerd. No, that was cool. It applies. Yeah, it applies. How many chains were there, Eliana? Uh, there were there were three, but you know oh. they really only needed two chains to they bring really that dragon. Only. Two chains out of the water. Two chains. Come on, Maester Monthly, be a guest. Wait, yeah, it. that would be awesome. Can we do that? Do you yeah, think he's a, no, a song of ice we? and fire nerd? This is his episode. Tweet him out. Yeah, let's oh, do we it. We should see. Anyway, I bet he loves the Citadel with their chains. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not because you only wear one. Um, <laughs> this other like minimal change that user Jax Masterson um, suggested to like up the stakes and actually make the whole thing seem less dumb is if Ron and Jamie get captured by Daenerys and then it's Cersei who tells them that they should get a white to prove to her that the army of the dead is coming. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. If Cersei's demanding the proof as opposed to them preemptively yeah, were- offering it. Yeah, as opposed yeah. to them like assuming, yeah, Cersei, Cersei thinks Totally She's probably going to want this for a present. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she wants this thing. And Kyburn could also true. want it too because yeah, he might true. be like, I learn a lot from this thing. Give it to me. I was at first really not on board with the idea of there being a dragon on the wrong side of the war. Uh, but if they do use Viserion to bring the wall down, then it lends credence to the overall theory that basically this giant threat to humanity is in fact humanity's fault just like we saw last season that the white walkers were initially created by the children of the forest for defense as opposed to to destroy all life yeah it's almost like they should have written a different plot for this season (laughs) whoa whoa too harsh too harsh so that's the grade that i give that's the grade the ratings let's do this i give them i give michael michael's words is my grade what does that mean? <laughs> my oh, words know. that they should have written a different plot for this season. Oh, okay. That's her grade. Uh, my right. my grade for this episode. Apple to dingo. I'm gonna give it a coconut. A coconut plus. Okay. I just feel like the the Winterfell stuff really undercut it. Some of the emotional heart was missing. But honestly, like I said at the beginning, I like I was on the edge of my seat and I was like whooping at the screen. So I can't really be that angry at this episode because it did make me feel good in my belly. Eliana's established she wished it was something else entirely. So I'm gonna <laughs> give that an F for her <laughs> what about you matt i'm gonna go banana minus i really did enjoy the battle sequences and i love the white lore and the stuff between the magnificent seven and like the dragon at the end because i'm such a huge wow nerd i loved everything about that i really can't get over the winterfell stuff that was such a huge drag on what they were doing with the rest of it mm, yeah i'm gonna give it an l for laugh because i burst out laughing at those are my faces yeah those are my faces <laughs> yeah do you want to touch my faces touch my face touch my faces put them on your face <laughs> so so that's an l from aaron brian what what a arbitrary rating are you giving this episode so uh it depends on whether we're grading on a curve or not uh by the standards of this season it deserves a decent grade i'm going to give it like grapes minus which which is pretty good by the standards of the season, because I, I I do feel like I should I should gra- grapes are wonderful. Okay, I think that, okay, no, okay. Seriously, seriously though, for a minute, I think that like most of my problems with the episode are problems that I have with the season in general, and my feelings specific to the episode are not so bad. That said, 
overall, like as an episode of the series, I'm going to give it like blueberries plus. Okay. Blueberries I'm going to give it a jackfruit in that it's an effort fruit, but I don't like jackfruit. Wow. <laughs> Here's maybe a more interesting way to rate it. Where does this rate on your list of penultimate season episodes? Oh. Oh. That's a so great got, question. You got Baylor, Blackwater, Reigns, uh, Watchers, mm-hmm. Daznak, Dance of the Dragons, and you got Battle Bastards. And now you got whatever this, what's this called? Enemy Below? Beyond the Wall. Uh, better than Daznak. Yeah, uh, it, I mean, Baylor's, Baylor's definitely number one. I think Blackwater is very good. I'm close between those two. Yeah, I, I don't Rains. know. I think Daznak and this are tied for worst for me. That's fair. Which is weird because I still liked it. <laughs> yeah, Blueberries I mean, I wouldn't, say I, I wouldn't say I dislike any of these episodes that you've listed <laughs> is the thing. I, but yeah, I would say this is probably near the bottom, if not the bottom for me. Yeah. I guess Daznak above or near it and then maybe Battle of the Bastards and then... Uh, Watchers on the Wall. I would definitely put Battle of the Bastards above this, but now that I'm thinking about Daznak, I might put Daznak below it. Mm. For me, it's like there's a yeah. huge cliff gap between like the first four ones and then like the last. Yeah. I really don't like Daznak. I don't know if... I think I da- dislike Daznak more than this episode for reasons that Daznak did to Danny's characterization. This mm-hmm. one yeah. like, didn't mm-hmm. do it to her. Sure. So I think I think this one is better than Daznak to me. Or the Dance of the Dragons, as they should they should call it Daznak. <laughs> That's another problem with the episode. It had the wrong title. <laughs> right. Yeah, the title wasn't very good. Uh, well, I think that about okay. wraps it up for this episode. Um, so as always, you can check us out on uh, WordPress at maestermonthly.wordpress.com. You can find us on YouTube, where you can see Aaron's wonderful video animations, GIFs, photoshops, etc. as part of the content. GIFs. We're not doing this right now. GIFs, GIFs. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play. You can also, of course, always find us on the subreddit, r slash r slash aswaf subreddit, A Song of Ice and Fire. And we're also on Twitter at Maester Monthly, where you can smash that MFN like button on all of our tweets. I don't think I've forgotten anything. So I, as always, have been Michael, a.k.a. Bookshelf Stud. And I have been Eliana, a.k.a. Glass Table Girl. Thank you always to our users for making awesome stuff for us to talk about. I've been Joe Magician, also known as Matt. I have been Aaron, Admiral Curd. I continue to be Brian Baratheon, also known as the Coast Guard. <laughs> Thank you, Coast Guard. And we'll see you next time. I know, I know.